0: The Rock, The Score's NBA podcast. My name is Joseph Cacharo, and today's episode is presented by Volkswagen. Whatever your definition of family is, there's an SUVW that suits it. And as I said last week, I do not have a new segue. The co-host that suits me is <laughs> remotely joins me now. Wolfon, what's up?
1: Not much, man. I'm still high, I think, off the fumes from that Celtics-Raptors game last night. That was amazing.
0: Look, we, we talked coming in about how you know we were waiting for this raptors celtics matchup that you know so many of, so many of us have been waiting years for now and and how even the match could be and how epic this series could be and you know a couple celtics blowouts aside four of the six games have been pretty damn tight pretty damn close and game 6 i think for most of it was like grind and maybe wasn't the prettiest basketball but it was just extremely, extremely competitive, defensive basketball, an elimination game with the champs on the ropes that went two overtimes and I mean, you could see the way NBA players were tweeting about the game, like just how into it everyone was, talk people calling it an instant classic, and that's what it was. I mean, obviously more so for Raptors fans because the Raptors came away with the win, but this is the type of playoff game, especially with the stakes involved, that like you, you remember and you talk about for years. It was, it was something else, and it was regardless of the scoring or not, like to, to see two teams competing at that level is just, it's phenomenal.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is exactly what I expected from this series. And the reason that I was so excited about the possibility of finally getting this series after so many years of these two teams managing to miss each other in the postseason, it was, like you said, extremely competitive, hard fought, defensive battle, but also just full of like really interesting tactical wrinkles and adjustments and counter adjustments. Obviously, you know, I-, I think anybody who's listened to this pod or just followed us in general over the years knows where our rooting interests lie so in a way I couldn't fully just enjoy it for what it was because the stress levels were so high but um, just kind of walking away from that game and once the dust had settled I I think uh, I was really able to appreciate just the level that that game was played at. Cause on both sides, I think it was pretty spectacular.
0: Yeah. I mean, like I said, the the competition level was insane. I mean, just off the top of my head, the the Jason Tatum chase down block on OG and Adobe, I think it was an overtime. It might've been the fourth quarter. Um, The like 38 different things we can pull out about Kyle Lowry and and the plays he made. It was just ridiculous. I I mean, you,
1: you mentioned some of the really fascinating tactical wrinkles. You know, maybe the most notable thing was the Raptors going small down the stretch of that game for both overtime periods they played with og at the five uh gasol i mean he gave them the spark offensively that they needed from him i think he finished with eight points but that's really they just needed something um and you know i we talked about that all in the second half by the way yeah yeah he was and he came out looking you know like the same out of sorts out of rhythm offensive player in the first half where he missed a layup. Uh, he badly missed a mid-range jumper and he just didn't seem to have any confidence in himself at that end of the floor. You saw him walk off and, you know, sort of give himself a bit of a pep talk. He looked like he was contemplating half. retirement and then came back in the second half and played came play. back in the second half. And honestly, I was, you know, because Serge Ibaka had had a really nice run in that first half where he hit three threes and rescued the Raptors offense when, you know, it was completely stuck in mud I was questioning a little bit the decision to start the second half with Gasol on the floor, and what does he do to come out? He blocks Chase and Tatum at the rim. He hits a three. Uh, he hits a layup on the roll. Hits another three, and honestly, like that was that was all the Raptors needed from him was just to be some level of threat at the offensive end, so the Celtics couldn't completely ignore him, and the Raptors weren't playing four on five, and then you know that allows him to stay on the floor and for his defense to play up and he ultimately comes out of the game because he picks up his fifth foul and I don't know if nurse planned at some point to get him back in the game but just decided he liked the small ball look obviously the way that norman powell played is what made that lineup possible that's another thing we talked about on the last pod it's like yeah it's a nice idea for the raptors to play small but in order for that to happen like norm needed to have a norm type of game and playoff norm finally showed up in this series with 15 points across the two overtime periods, including a massive three to tie the game at 115 when the Celtics had gone up three on a Marcus Smart triple. And then that spiel of Jason Tatum, then going coast to coast and getting the and one layup, taking the bump from smart and finishing. That was just awesome. And I you know, to me, so I, I really expected the small lineup to help at the offensive end. And I almost think that it helped them more at the defensive end because just giving themselves that extra measure of speed and switchability they were switching a lot not only on ball but off ball and it just made it so much easier for them to defend those high screens that the celtics were running to such great effect especially in the second half of that game and i know kemba walker only wound up with five points in this game across 51 minutes which is kind of insane but as a game manager in this one he was really great he didn't force anything he was getting into the middle of the floor and triggering passing sequences that led to open threes even if he wasn't directly getting the assists on those plays i think there were a lot of plays where he got hockey assists just because he was able to break down the defense at the point of attack
0: you mentioned the the norm scoring in the two overtimes which obviously him showing up literally saved the Raptors' season but just in general actually offense from both teams in the second overtime after the game had been just an absolute slog was pretty remarkable given how many minutes both had played jared weiss tweeted yesterday the 35 combined points set an NBA record for the most points in a single overtime in an elimination game. So, I mean, there's a lot of a lot of variables there, but still, that it's just kind of incredible, I guess, the way they can, you know, I don't know whether you want to say like, dig down and find something or just execute at a high level despite the amount of minutes on all their bodies at that point in the game. But yeah, that, I mean, the entire game was epic, overtime in general, late fourth quarter, um, but that second overtime was just like neither team missed much. And then, yeah, for the game to essentially turn and be decided on about 20 seconds of Norman Powell hitting a three, coming up with a steal and getting an and one is, I mean, I, I was tweeting about this, like Celtics fans and the Celtics in general got to feel sick because, you know, we can say what we want about this being an epic game. And it. we always thought it was going to go the distance or whatever the case may be, Celtics are plus 32 through the first six games. And there are so many different points you can look at even in this game you know I'm, it's not like they blew a 20 point lead but i mean first of all you can obviously go back to the fact they were up two nothing in the series and head up two points with 0.5 seconds left and taco fall of all people guarding a six foot inbounder you know the raptors go seven of 23 in the first quarter in the elimination game somehow come out of that quarter only down four you know celtics go up 12 at one point in the second quarter and then Ibaka scores nine points in less than two minutes <laughs> Um, There was a Lowry-Powell combination 8-0 run in the span of 54 seconds in the second quarter that made it way closer than it should have been at halftime. Neither team scored the final 159 of regulation, and Kemba probably should have had free throws with 3.5 seconds to go. Celtics had a two-possession lead in double overtime and took a lead into the final minute then gave up six points in less than 19 seconds. OG and Norm to essentially seal it like you can you can find these coulda woulda should have moments in any close game in any close series but it just feels like the amount of times the Celtics have had the opportunity to put the Raptors away in this series. Like, it, it's it, I'm not saying it's going to decide game seven I'm not saying they won't be able to recover but it, it is it's it's kind of astonishing and if you're the Celtics or a Celtics fan like you really do just got to feel sick right now kind of replaying it all in your head because you know they probably think they should have won this thing in five four and, you know, now somehow it's going to seven. And to be honest with you, the Raptors have played one complete game in this series. And that's the other thing that's kind of like makes you think because, you know, everything we've seen from the matchup tactically. And, and they played 10 times now this season. It, it just looks like a bad matchup for the Raptors. Like, I think the Raptors are the better, a little bit of a better team on aggregate. But the Celtics are clearly just a bad matchup for them. And, like, mm-hmm. that's very evident now. They played 10 times. Celtics have won six of them. They've mostly dominated this series, even though it's 3-3. But then the flip side of that is like, well, if you're the Raptors, you're probably thinking like, we've played one fully, completely good game in this series. And we're going to game seven. Like, we just are the better team. I don't know. There's a lot to dig into there. But if I'm a Celtics fan, I'm sick replaying the the various moments in this series when they failed to
1: put it away. I'm curious what makes you say that you think the Raptors are a better team. I mean, the season as a whole. I know, but I mean, we're... Like, I think we know enough by now not to treat the no, regular fair, season. fair age. enough.
0: Fair enough. I think
1: I think the Raptors are the better team on aggregate in
0: that I think if you take performances across the 30 teams in general over the course of a season, I think, I think the Raptors fare better. I think they're deeper. I mean, Tatum coming on the way he did to end the season maybe probably changes the
1: equation for me because I think... Also, does the Raptors being deeper really matter when they're just basically running a seven man rotation and sometimes a six man rotation. Like I, I think, I think if the Raptors deeper guys played up to their capabilities, I think it would matter.
0: I think if the, if Raptors stable of like sixth to ninth men played up to their capabilities, I think the Raptors may have won the series already.
1: Yeah. I, they probably I win don't game think two. I, they probably, like they, but, but I just don't, I don't know that that really matters, I guess, because they haven't. So I, I'm not convinced that the Raptors are a better team. I'm not necessarily convinced that they aren't. I just think the Celtics have played like the better team in this series, without a doubt. But, you know, but then, I that's,
0: think, then that's the counter though. It's like how, how, if if you're the better team, how how is a team that's played one complete game it, going to game seven with you? Well, and I think that's a question th- the Celtics need to ask themselves.
1: But I think that also requires some context, right? Like, the Raptors have done some things poorly and there have been a couple of games where they flat out stunk like game 1 and game 5 where they a lot of their wounds were self-inflicted, but it, the reason that they haven't played, you know, these quote-unquote complete games or why they've looked not great at points has a lot to do with the team that they're playing against. You know, like Boston's had a hand in that too. And I think they've managed to make the Raptors look like a worse team than they actually are with the way that they've defended. And the way that, you know, some of those double drag actions have compromised the Raptors defense, but, you know, the way that they've managed to find soft, point, soft spots to attack in what's been otherwise like an ironclad defense all year. I, I don't know. I mean, we we can talk about like looking ahead to game seven and what we're going to be looking for and what might decide that game. I can't call it. I'm not going to make a prediction or anything like that. You, you picked Raptors in seven. I did. So like, yeah, I'll just stick with that. But I'm not, yeah, I'm not gonna like... I don't know, just after what I've seen from six games, I know it kind of all goes out the window in game seven because it's just like the, the physical toll and the attrition of the last six games. You don't know how that's going to affect everybody. Like, I, I agree with you in that. I think the Celtics probably have to be kicking themselves for not being out of this series by now. And I don't know how the psychological toll of having to play a game seven after you know, how many times they've had the Raptors on the ropes is going to affect them. So I think you just throw everything out the window and they go out there and they play and we'll see what happens. But I, I think the Celtics have been the better team in this series for agreed, sure. Agreed. And whether that means they're the better team overall, I guess I can't say. But I, I don't think that I've seen anything this series that tells me, you know, the Raptors are a better team. I don't know. What are you, uh, what are you looking for in Game 7?
0: You mentioned the small lineup that worked. I mean, I guess we'll say it worked. They ended up outscoring the Celtics with it on the court. I mean, I'd want to see more of it. But, you know, it'll be interesting to see if if Nick Nurse leans into that more in a Game 7. Was it more out of just kind of the circumstances and and Gasol picking up that fifth foul? Or did Nurse genuinely want to go to it at some point, explore it? And and did it just kind of come together at the right time? Because it's hard to have watched what happened down the stretch of that game and not want to see a little more of it. But again, as you mentioned to roll with that you need norm playing somewhat you know he doesn't have to be what he was in these two overtimes not gonna score 15 points in 10 minutes but you need him to be something closer to what he usually is or what he usually was this season for that lineup to work so i mean that'll be interesting you mentioned the minutes like We were joking around about this yesterday off air, but I mentioned that they're all going to be tired. And you said, well, the the Celtics guys are all 22. And my counter to that was, like, really, Lowry's out of all the guys that played heavy minutes, like, Kyle Lowry's really the only, quote-unquote, old guy. Like, Marc Gasol wasn't playing heavy minutes. As I mentioned, he was practically semi-retired by halftime. Serge Ibaka, who I guess is old now, like, didn't really play heavy minutes. The, The guys who played heavy minutes for the Raptors were Lowry, Siakam, OG, Van Vliet. And uh, really, Lowry's the only old guy. So, I don't know. I mean, if the minutes only affect the aging guys, then yeah, absolutely. The Raptors are in trouble because uh, Kyle Lowry's the most important one. And if he can't play like Kyle Lowry, they're in serious trouble. But I don't know. I, I guess I just have a hard time believing that at this point in the series, like one team is going to be more affected by the fatigue than another just because of age. I just think at like this point, especially when you're talking about a guy like Lowry, I don't know. Maybe it means that if they were to come out of that game seven, like he'll have nothing left for game one of the next year. I don't know, but I just I have a hard time believing a, a guy like Lowry will kind of allow the fatigue to take over mentally in a game seven to get to the conference final.
1: I think it's so funny that just like one of the knocks on Lowry's whole career is that he just like seems to be out of shape, and yet here he is at 34 years old, averaging 42 minutes across six games like and and those are not just like 42 throwaway minutes like those are 42 insanely intense high leverage minutes he doesn't seem any worse for the wear at the end of these games I mean he was absolutely brilliant at the end of that game six and I did think you know at the end of regulation Raptors went like four some minutes without scoring in the fourth quarter to to end regulation and then also the start of overtime um, when the Celtics built that four point lead, there were like four or five possessions in a row where Lowry didn't touch the ball. I was kind of fuming about that. I know there were a lot of other Raptors fans thinking like, why isn't Lowry getting a touch? We're getting these like Van Vliet ISOs. We get a Norm Powell isolation at the end of regulation to potentially win the game. I think maybe those are the instances where you, you, you might see fatigue catching up to Kyle. Like he literally just like, can't be initiating every single possession, but Anytime they put the ball in his hands, good things happened. And I think he, to me, has been the best player in this series, which is incredible. And if the Raptors manage to pull this off, I think... This is the crowning achievement of his career.
0: It's funny that you say that because I do remember we had an episode earlier this year and we talked about Raptors Celtics and I mentioned, this was before Tatum popped off by the way, but I mentioned the Raptors having the best player in this potential series and I remember you at the time calling me out because you thought I was talking about Siakam over Tatum, but it was actually Larry I was talking about at the time. Again, that was before Tatum popped off. I think we all assumed Jason Tatum would be the best player in the series and I think through two games it looked like that, but... But yeah, since then, I mean, I I don't even think it's an argument. It's not up for debate. Kyle Lowry's absolutely been the best player in this series. And he's essentially willed this team to a game seven. I mean, we talked about it in game three when, you know, the Raptors couldn't crack the Celtics defense and Kyle Lowry was just coming down like with these FU drives just to kind of keep them afloat and keep them within striking distance. He did the same thing yesterday when the Celtics went up four in double overtime. He just had this drive. And somehow finished like this really contested layup. And it was one of those drives. And it's like, oh yeah, that's what a star does where his team just absolutely needs a bucket from somewhere. Defense has been incredible. There's just like not really much else we can say about Kyle Lowry. The guy is a hall of fame point guard who should be near the tail end of his career. And, kind of wearing down and instead he's playing literally some of the best basketball of that hall of fame career to drag his team to a game seven against a great Celtics team it's it's going to be fun as hell to see how he and and the Raptors and the Celtics come out in game seven because it has the chance to be another epic.
1: yeah and I've actually like I remember the conversation you're talking about and I I've actually felt all year that, that Lowry has been the Raptors best player as much as Siakam's you yeah. know like the number one option offensively in that, you know, he was their leading scorer, uh, has their highest usage rate. And for most of the season was the guy that they put, you know, turned to and put the ball in his hands down the stretch. And I think, you know, what has made this Lowry performance so impressive and what will make it so impressive if they win game seven is the fact that he is being asked to do so much because he he's having to carry this Raptors offense because it hasn't been there for Siakam. And, you know, one of the things that I'm looking at in game seven is, I think the answer for the Raptors is not to like force feed Siakam touches to try and get him going. The answer to me is to feature him less. And I think in those smaller lineups, it's actually going to be easier for them to do that because, you know, him playing off ball when the Raptors are going, you know, OG at the five, it's going to be a lot easier for him to like operate in space off ball, like cutting baseline, hanging out in the dunker spot, scavenging for baskets that way. They can get him some corner threes. Maybe I know like those haven't been fruitful for him in this series. He shot four for four for 31 from three in this series. I think having him play off of the ball rather than rather than trying to ram possessions through him in the post is the way that they need to go. And quite honestly, like his defense has been so spectacular that he doesn't need to be an offensive plus in order to be one of the most impactful players in this series. I mean, he played 54 minutes last night was a game high plus 12. And that was while being a minus at the offensive end. Is and what his defense he
0: covers on the defensive end. It's exhausting. It's, it's exhausting.
1: Yeah. It's his defensive range, like his ability to help at the rim and then like get back out to challenge shooters above the break, both as an on ball guy against Tatum in that game. And as a, a helper at the rim, I think he was probably the best defensive player on the floor in that game. So just scaling back his touches offensively and allowing him to focus on playing defense, I think is a perfectly fine idea. And like, yes, that puts a lot of strain on Lowry. Yes, there will be times when Lowry just needs a break and they need to be able to like give the ball to Siakam and see if he can go and create something. But I don't think featuring him in the offense the way that they have been doing is the right answer. And part of this is the Celtics, man. They deserve a lot of credit for the way that they've defended him. Really nothing has worked. We talked about how like the post-ups on Marcus Smart and Jalen Brown haven't gone anywhere. The face-ups haven't really gone anywhere in large part because I think whether it's because he didn't touch a basketball for four months during the hiatus or what, but like his handle has gotten looser as this season has gone along. He's not changing direction really well. And so I think that's just made it really easy for the Celtics defenders to kind of sit on his moves. They know exactly what he's going to do and where he's going to go. They've managed to draw charges or just stay in front of him, strip him when he tries to put the ball on the floor. And even when you know, the Raptors have tried to run those Pascal small pick and rolls where they have, you know, Fred or Lowry screen for him and try to get Kemba switched onto him. Those kind of plays were so fruitful for the Raptors all season. And they've gotten nothing out of them in this series. Those, those and, were their crunch time go-tos. And a big reason they haven't is because Kemba has done a really good job. Like the Celtics are switching those actions, but like they're not like lazy switches. Like they switch them. As if, like, they're hedging almost and switching at the same time. Like, Kemba is jumping right out at him. So he's not getting any kind of runway to get going downhill. And then another thing the Celtics have done just a brilliant job of is a lot of the time when the Raptors do get that switch and it's Pascal kind of in the mid post area, the Celtics are scramming Kemba out of that matchup before Siakam can even, like, catch the ball. And suddenly he turns around and it's Marcus Smart on him. And there was one huge play in the fourth quarter when it looked like the Raptors had gotten the switch they wanted. They dumped the ball into Pascal. The Celtics had executed like a perfect kickout switch and then Smart immediately stole the ball from Siakam. I, I just think against this Celtics defense and the number of ways uh, that they can neutralize him at the offensive end, I just think having him play more of an off-ball role while focusing on his defense is what's going to bring him the most success in Game 7.
0: You know, we mentioned Norman Powell, but it's slightly easier to do that as well. When, like, you're getting the offensive Creativity you're getting from OG Ananobi. He's still obviously nowhere near a finished product on the offensive end, but he's at the place now, at the level where he's like saving some possessions with his ability to create a shot for himself, which like, I don't know if we... Uh, I didn't ever think I'd be saying that about OG and an Obi this season, um, but it happened in game six. Like there were times when the Raptors needed something in a late shot clock situation, and it wasn't just him catching and shooting. It was him having the ball around the free throw line and having to create something for himself and sticking it. And yeah, I mean, if if they get that kind of creativity from OG and an Obi, it makes it a little easier to deal with the facts. Yakim's giving them almost nothing on the offensive end. The precision with which the Celtics are executing defensively in this series has been phenomenal it's been incredible to watch they they are playing at such a high level and i mean you could say the same for them on the offensive end even though like the raptors defense is good enough that it negates some of that but i mean you you just look at the way like the raptors have been given up corner threes and a lot of threes all year and have survived because of the combination of pascal siakam OG and Anobi flying out at shooters and just their length in general their ability to recover the Celtics are the first team that's really picked them apart and truly punished them for that and put them in situations where like it's too late and they just don't get to the corner in time or they get them moving in a way that once they find the corner, it's a, it's essentially an open shot. And even in the fourth quarter of game six, you saw the Celtics just, I think it was like four possessions in a row that Kemba or Tatum just got the Raptors defense moving in a way and, and the off ball movement got them moving in a way that the open corner three was there every time. And the Celtics made three in a row they are almost flawlessly executed at both ends. And again, this goes back to... Things like, I, I'm not at all trying to turn this into a knock because I'm genuinely impressed by how precise they've been in their execution. But it, it just goes back to what I was saying. It's like, if I'm a Celtics fan or if I'm sitting in their locker room, I'm thinking like, like we have played like near-flawless basketball on both ends of the court against a team that we think we're better than. And we've essentially dominated them for most of six games. And now we're in a winner-take-all. So, like, it just... Again, I don't I don't even think it's gonna it's gonna necessarily be the end of them psychologically I'm just like trying to put myself in their shoes and like how I would feel you know what I mean it in in a yeah. competition knowing that that's the case because I I really don't think they can play much better than what they have whereas with the Raptors yes agree with you that the Celtics deserve a lot of credit for the way the Raptors are played but I think we would both agree that the Raptors definitely can play better than they had in the in these six games. And some of that is just small sample size stuff, right? Like, at the end of the day, they've still been outscored by 32 points. Like, it's going to Game 7, but they have been the inferior teams. A lot of it is just small sample size stuff, but... But yeah, they can definitely play better. And I just don't know if the Celtics can because they've been really good.
1: It's so much easier, I think, for the Celtics offense to create good shots than it is for the Raptors. Like the Raptors have to work really hard for the looks that they get. And it's really taxing, I think, for their guards. They're being asked to do so much shot creation with Siakam struggling the way that he is. And for the Celtics, it's kind of like you said, like they, they run those high screen actions. It's like Kemba and Tatum getting into the middle of the floor and... If the Raptors are helping off of the corner because they want to take away the roll, then those open corner threes are going to be there. If they're staying home, then it's like you saw. I mean, like, a, I think three, maybe four times down the stretch of that game, Kemba got into the middle. Um, the help was late coming from the corner, and Kemba's just throwing it up top to Tice for these alley oops. Like, they, it just seems way easier for them to break down the Raptors' defense than vice versa. So I don't know that it's necessarily true that like they've played as good as they possibly can and the Raptors can play so much better. Um, I think, I don't know, it's, it, it, to me, it's just like a total toss up for game seven. But um, but I think, you know, from what I've seen this series, it just seems to me like a, a little bit easier for the Celtics to get what they want at the offensive end. Um, do you want to take a guess at who has hit the most threes in this series? Which player? Marcus Smart. Correct. Yeah. Marcus Smart yeah. who in writing about this series I he was the x factor that I chose for the Celtics because I was like well look Marcus Smart shot 38 percent from three this year or maybe it was like 36 percent um which I'm like okay that's pretty impressive but like I don't know that I trust that shot in like high leverage I think the Raptors are going to kind of dare him to beat them he's the guy that they're going to help off of most aggressively they'll stick their best help defenders on him we've seen you know they've stuck and they've stuck OG on him they've stuck Siakam on him. Uh, Gasol has even seen some time guarding him so that he can be more of a helper at the rim. And so many times he's been the guy catching the ball in the corner and he has shot 43% from three in this series on almost nine attempts per game. So yeah, I mean, that, that tells me that the Celtics have like had a lot of good process in their offense because they are getting him a ton of open corner three-point looks. But it also tells me that, you know, sometimes it just comes down to shot making and the Celtics have have shot the ball well for the most part in this series. Although, you know, they're only shooting 35% from three as a team. So it hasn't been like some crazy outlier on the whole. Just the fact that Smart himself has been so ridiculously hot from deep while the Raptors shooters have... Mostly struggled, honestly. We'll see. I mean, Fred Van Vliet's under 30% from three for the series. And has missed Siakam- some
0: open one. Like, Fred has missed some absolutely open ones.
1: Yeah, he has. But then you look at like OG is thirteen for twenty six from three in the series, and Serge Ibaka is fourteen for twenty seven. Again, so. Serge
0: Ibaka scored nine points in less than two minutes on three threes in a span in the second quarter that might have saved the Raptors' season. So like, right. they've had their moments of inconceivable shot I mean, look at the end of game three, and the only reason this series is still going right, like as much as yeah, Smart's shooting seems out of whack that. The Raptors have had their moments, too, where again, if you're like the Celtics, you're gonna
1: be thinking, like, are you kidding me? That stuff always evens itself out. So the Raptors as a team are shooting thirty two point seven percent from three. Celtics are at thirty five point three percent. So maybe the shot making for both teams is coming from unexpected places, but on the whole, it's sort of balancing itself out.
0: What's up, Pound the Rock, listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to Pound the Rock on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out The Score's other sports podcasts. For Major League Baseball, there's Expand the Zone. For Soccer, we've got Sweeper Keeper. Puck Pursuit has you covered for the NHL. And the Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone covers, you guessed it, fantasy football. And in case you haven't already, download The Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. Now back to the show. While the Raptors and the Celtics play their guts out just to get to the conference finals, the team they're going to play is sitting there chilling, probably drinking Jimmy Butler's $20 coffee somewhere in the NBA bubble. And that's the Miami Heat. We're going to get to the team the Heat eliminated very soon because there's a lot to talk about there. But before we do that, just real quick, wanted your take on, do you think one of the Raptors or the Heat uh, matchup better against the Do you think one of those teams, like? Should, do you think the Heat should want to play one of those teams more than the other? Uh, or do you think the Heat are just kind of in tough either way?
1: I kind of think maybe the, the Raptors would be a tougher matchup for them because I feel like, you know, Miami is stocked with really capable wing defenders and the Celtics are pretty reliant on their wings for, you know, to drive their offense. Whereas I think the Raptors offense is more guard oriented and the heat don't do as good a job. I don't think of defending guards to me. I don't know. Maybe that makes the Raptors a little bit tougher. I I think it's pretty negligible, man. I think like the Celtics and Raptors are just so <laughs> closely matched. And honestly, like to me, I think, you know, both Boston and Toronto are better than Miami. I think if Miami does go to the finals, a lot of it will have to do with the fact that like they're kind of chilling right now while the Raptors and Celtics are beating the crap out of each other. But as far as like whether they should be rooting for any particular matchup, I don't I don't really think so. Like I think
0: I think they're both bad matchups for Miami to be honest.
1: Yeah, I mean, and 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 it's not like Miami isn't a bad matchup for either of those teams either. Like there are certainly things that the heat can do um, against both Boston and Toronto at either end of the floor to make life really difficult. I just think if, you know, whatever team makes it through, if they're not just like too battered and bruised and exhausted, I I feel like there's just going to be a sense, not that like Miami's defense in the playoffs has been freaking incredible as well, but I still kind of think that there's going to be some sense of relief for either one of the teams that makes it through in not having to face the defense that they've been facing for the last six games. Because I think, you know, as good as Miami's defense is, they also have to play weak defenders. And that just hasn't really been the case for Toronto or Boston. Um, Even Kemba Walker, who we've always, you know, we kind of talk about him as being like the weak link in the Celtics defense. And I think his defense has been great in this series.
0: Matt Thomas on the Raptors side is supposed to be like... (laughs) It's supposed to be like a sieve. And he, I, the guy's like disciplined staying down on Tatum. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah, Camden's been yeah. great. No, I agree with you. I don't, I don't think a full defensive liability has played in this series so far. I will canter for those like five minutes.
1: Right. And he never played again. Yeah. So, you know, what does that tell you, right? Like the Raptors see one defensive liability and they destroy him for four yeah. minutes and he never comes back on the floor. I think there'll be kind of a palpable sense of relief at seeing the Heat defense as good as that Heat defense has been. So, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm going to be excited for that series either way. Because I think, look, I've been down on the heat all year. I've been doubting them. Shame on you. And here I am eating my words, man. They've been unbelievable.
0: They're good. But I think the winner of game seven will find themselves in the NBA finals. Um, Team that will not find itself in the NBA finals is the team that's finished the regular season with the best record two years in a row. The team that employs the guy who should soon become the two-time Back-to-back reigning MVP and a team that has a lot of pressure building on them if they didn't already to win very soon, and that's the Milwaukee Bucks. You wrote uh, a great piece about why there is plenty of blame to go around in in the way the Bucks failed. So I'm assuming one of those Mike Budenholz. I mean, I'm not assuming. I read the piece already.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, look, you know me, right? I'm. I know you. I, you know me. My, I, I think my writing. I try to be. Nuanced, you know, maybe sometimes even to a fault. I I tend to try and give the benefit of the doubt and look at every side of a problem. And I didn't really do that in this case. And maybe part of that was my feeling of frustration at being burned because I continued to believe in this Bucks team, even in the face of plenty of evidence to the contrary. But I just think that this was an organizational failure. And I think that falls on the Bucks players, it falls on the coaching staff, it falls on the front office, and it falls on ownership. And I mean, to me, we can get into the or stuff. There's a lot to talk about there. But I kind of think it starts with Giannis. And the fact that in this series, he just plain was not good enough and you know we talked a lot about his minutes load and how it was being suppressed by his coach but at the end of the day you know the bucks were outscored by 13 points per hundred possessions when he was on the floor in this series he could not find a way to attack that heat defense he didn't have enough counters when they were loading up on him part of that had to do with the guys who were playing around him and the fact that like they just couldn't adequately spaced the floor for him part of it had to do with the heat defense which just did an incredible job of kind of stunting and rotating on a string mike prada uh who i think like writes really well um about the tactical side of basketball and does it in a way that is uh very visual wrote an incredible piece about uh the heat defense and how they were defending the bucks and just demonstrating how on a string they were with their rotations and why they were able to have so much success kind of building that wall around Giannis without it compromising them too much but I think like it just comes down to the fact that like Giannis didn't have any counters and the improved three-point shot that we saw during the season the kind of mid-range turnaround that he used a pretty good effect throughout the season just completely fell by the wayside he didn't whether he didn't trust those shots when it mattered or you know in in the case of the three ball just it wasn't there for him he didn't really have any answers other than to continually try to hurl himself at the rim and against this heat defense, that wasn't a good solution. And that's before you even get into like the free throw shooting woes that have now plagued him in two straight post seasons. It's really weird because this guy has been an above 70% free throw shooter pretty much his entire career until the conference finals last year, where suddenly he's shooting like 58% from the line, airballing free throws, like missing them badly. And, it like broke him because he didn't recover. He shot like 63% from the line this year, which was the worst mark of his career. And that's continued into the playoffs. I don't know why like that has suddenly happened, but he was shooting 77% from the line two years ago. And suddenly, you know, he's looking like Shaq out there.
0: Yeah, well, the Shaq's a great comparison actually, like legitimately because, um, you know, I'm not the first person to bring that comparison up. But when you remember or think about how Shaq dominated games physically, Especially earlier in his career, when he was more athletic, and like no one would argue that Shaq wasn't an alpha, that he wasn't a franchise player, that he wasn't a championship-level franchise player, but um, you know, for various reasons with his playing style, one of which included, you know, obviously being a complete free throw liability, Shaq needed a a scorer to help him. I think Giannis is there. And it's weird because he technically has it. Like, Chris Middleton's a 20-point guy on nearly 50-40-90 shooting. So it's weird that we're saying that. And he had a great game four or whatever it was. But I don't know. I think – I don't I don't just want to get back to saying it's, like, on the supporting cast because it's not. Like, Middleton had a great year. But, like, Middleton needed to be better too, you know, other than that game four. Like, he wasn't good enough as, like, the second best player. Like, he, he needed to pick Giannis up in certain situations, and he didn't. Um, as a whole, like, the Bucks like you start looking at that roster and i know like they won 60 games last year they would have won 60 games again this year for a while they were up as you mentioned uh, up until march they were still on a 71 win pace so like i know it's very easy now that they've been eliminated again to go back and say well like i don't know look at the roster it's not that good but like really look at their roster i know they've made the most of it and i know in the regular season brunholzer system has has created a monster but like when you really sit down and look at it, and now like we're at a point where like we've seen them flame out two years in a row in the playoffs, and I, I know you you maybe don't think they necessarily flamed out last season, but like they lost four straight after going up two nothing in that series, and kind of looked like they didn't have any answers. And this year they definitely flamed out. Like I think at some point you do need to look at that roster and say like okay, like maybe like we can do what we do in the regular season, but maybe it's true that yeah, like this roster is not good enough around even an MVP to win a championship. like I, t- I think that's evident. I don't think you can win a championship with this roster.
1: I don't know if I'm all the way there. I think they can. They were really close last year, man. Like, really, really close to going up 3-0 on the Raptors. And it's if awesome they do that... Stuff. No, I, I mean, if they do that, like, you know, I, I, they're in the finals and I think they have a pretty good shot at knocking off that banged up, banged up Warriors team. Um, So to say can't is, I think, a bridge too far for me. But I do think it's interesting, and maybe this is a, a natural segue to get into the Buttonholzer conversation, but his decision to, you know, rather than trying stuff out in the regular season, rather than building uh, a more malleable type of scheme where you can try different stuff when there's different personnel, uh, different players in the game, uh, as opposed to like, oh, you take Brooke Lopez out of the game and now you're running Marvin Williams at the five, but you're still playing a deep drop for some reason. Yeah, um, Marvin
0: Williams like doesn't have to play that way. You can be a little more flexible when you've got Marvin Williams at center instead of Brooke Lopez.
1: Right. I mean, the whole point of having lineup flexibility is the fact that you can play different types of styles. And, you know, at the offensive end, they didn't really diversify their system there. Like so much of it is still just dependent on Giannis being an initiator from the top of the floor, it's really successful against regular season defenses because regular season defenses are just about habit building and they're not game planning for specific opponents. So that allows the Bucks to just run up all of these regular season wins. And part of that has to do with the fact they do the same thing pretty much every time at both ends. And there's um, a sort of ingrained muscle memory where, the team knows exactly what to do. It's so familiar running this system, and that makes them like a regular season beast. But you're saying you look at the roster and you don't think, you know, just based on the talent on this team, they're good enough to win a championship. So if we're talking about Bud, I think my question is, and I honestly don't know, like I don't have the answer. I don't know what I think, but so like if they didn't have this, this like ingrained system that had become routine and second nature for them and that meant that they weren't such a dominant dominant regular season team would the heat be turned up on him as high as it is right now would we be considering this this huge disappointment and organizational failure if they hadn't been this like incredible regular season team
0: right if they were like a 51 win three or four seed the last couple years no you're right we wouldn't like in in that way um, he's a little bit a victim of maybe raising their floor. No, I guess it wouldn't even be raising the floor. But he's just a victim of maybe having them overachieve a little bit in the regular season because of the, the expectations that obviously come with the fact you have the best record in the league and the MVP on your team. But I think it's possible to a little bit a victim of your own success and still be completely deserving of criticism. I credited him for like his job in the regular season last year. I was, I was saying this year that I didn't think he was getting enough coach of the year buzz for most of the season, because I didn't think just because the bucks were like good 60 win good last year. I don't think that like diminishes the job he did in the fact that they were practically 70 win good this season. But I still think regardless of where they were in, in the standings when they came into the playoffs, you know, I still think there were certain things that, we're looking for that i'm looking for when i watch coaches in the playoffs that is is not even tied to the expectations you know like yes obviously you'd hope that team with more on the line would be a little more desperate but the milwaukee orlando series in the first round like the magic had no expectations of even winning a game and if you watch the way steve clifford like like steve clifford had a really good series and and just the preparedness the magic came into you know, the, the Nets got swept, but there were points in that series where Jacques Vaughn came out with little wrinkles. You'd be like, oh, like that's different. Okay, like the Nets are trying, like they're trying something here. They're try-. And those are teams that, you know, I didn't have any expectations for them in the playoffs. So, yeah, I agree that he's a little bit a victim of his own success because of the expectations. But I also think that expectations or not, there were certain things that if you want to succeed at any point in the playoffs as an NBA head coach, you need to be able to do. And Budenholz are now in two stops, by the way you know like say what you will about the hawks not really truly being contenders anyway but these same issues plagued him there too his inability to adapt and creating these systems that are not malleable so it's like at some point like this guy is who he is and i mean it sounds crazy because he's coming off back to back number 1 overall seeds but if you're a contender like that need to coach why would you think about Mike Budenholzer in the future who's hiring Mike Budenholzer up there's just someone that needs their like floor raised someone that needs an offensive overhaul because if you're a contender that needs to get over the hump in the playoffs. That's the antithesis of what Mike Wootenholzer is.
1: Yeah, I mean, if you're a contender, you're probably happy with the coach that you have. Well, not,
0: not necessarily. I mean, there's not a specific team right now that needs it, but I'm saying a lot of times it's contenders that are changing coaches because they think there's like one thing left to get over the hump. I mean, like whether you look at the Raptors with Casey, you know, there's plenty
1: of examples of, of teams that are contenders that... Right, end well, up- the Raptors with Casey were exactly essentially where the Bucks are with Bud now, right. which is like... Okay, like we, on one hand, here's this coach who has really been a part of getting us to the level that we're at now. And I don't think Casey, like I think Bud is a better coach than Casey. To me, like Buddenholzer comes in there and completely revamps their whole operation. Like they were a mess at both ends of the floor when he got there. He organized their offense. I think he put Giannis in a position to really thrive, um, allowed him to explore different elements of his game, including, you know, playmaking and being essentially a point guard in transition um, and having him operate in more space. He He completely transforms Brooke Lopez's game. I mean, this was a guy who was like a back to the basket big who had a pretty spotty defensive reputation. And now he's, you know, a three point bombing rim protector who just made all defensive second team. Bucks are number one in defense both years that he's there. Best record in the league, best net rating in the league both years that he was there. Before he got there in the Giannis era, they topped out at 44 wins and hadn't gotten out of the first round. So, you know, I think for any team like that where they're like, look, we have a lot of talent on this roster, but we don't really know what we're doing at either end of the floor. We want a coach who's going to come in here, be able to look at the roster with a clarity of vision to be able to say, here's what we're going to do. And I think it's a real credit to Bud because and honestly, here's the like, only thing we're going to do. Well, yes, I mean, perhaps, Um, but, but I do think it's a real credit to Bud because, you know, what he has, what he's doing in Milwaukee is not remotely similar to what he did in Atlanta. And yes, he's been kind of married to his systems at both of those stops, but both of those systems have been tailored to the personnel on hand. So it's not like he doesn't have a facility to recognize like what his players are capable of and put them in a position to succeed. I think it's more just like the micro adjustments from game to game and in game that he obviously really needs to work on. But if you are like, I don't know, I'll throw out like the Bulls, I guess, uh, or the Pelicans even, you know, like if you're the Pelicans, I would take a long, hard look at Mike Budenholzer and say, like, we think we have a a really talented team. We just need to figure out like how to maximize the talent on hand. And we need to figure out kind of what we want to do, what our identity is going to be. And I think Bud is a guy who's going to come in and give your team an identity.
0: How close to contention do you think the Pelicans think they are? Because I think the Pelicans think they're closer to contention than we think. And if that's the case, they should not touch Mike
1: Budenholzer. Because <laughs> you're going to have to fight. You're going to have to fire him once you're a contender. Um. OK, well, well, so you think so. Do you think the Bucks are going to have to fire Bud? I don't know if they will like whether well, to. they should. They should absolutely fire Mike Budenholzer. I think it's going to be up to Giannis.
0: Yeah, no, that's and you know what? Then, then maybe Budenholzer saves his job because or keeps his job because, I mean, Giannis is a loyal guy and like whatever. But I don't know, man. I I, I realize how ridiculous it seems to say that they absolutely need to fire a guy that pro, like would have won sixty plus games in back to back seasons. But if they view themselves as a finals or bus team at minimum, which is probably what they do to ch- if they're trying to keep Giannis cupo, then I do not see how you can come back because the season does not matter to them next. Like, the regular season does not matter to them next year. I'm not saying they can go 44 and 38 and, like, get the 60 and, and be on the road the whole playoffs, but, like, they don't need the seed. Like, they don't need to win 65 games. They need to go into the playoffs healthy and, like, playing well and then go into the playoffs with a very different, more malleable mindset. And... Unless Mike Budenholzer becomes somebody over the next year that he has not shown himself to be for as long as we've known him as an NBA coach, he's not the guy to do that. So I think absolutely they need to go in another direction. I think if they come back with Mike Budenholzer next year, that's malpractice for a contender.
1: I think if they come back with Mike Budenholzer next year because Giannis is like, I trust Bud, I like Bud, I want Bud back. Or just. I think that's he's... an indictment of Giannis
0: if he says that. I...
1: Well, to me, like Giannis's MO has always been like, I don't make those decisions. You know, that's for the front office to do. And I don't think he would throw Bud under the bus. Like if they went to Giannis and were like, what do you think? He'd be like, you guys decide. I don't want any part in this. If he says that and their decision is to bring Bud back on its face, I don't necessarily think that's malpractice, but if, if they bring him back and it looks the same next season and they're still inflexible in terms of their system and they're just doing the same thing and you know running roughshod over the rest of the teams <laughs> during the regular season. But there's no sense that he's figured out like how, how to experiment, how to adapt, how to try things maybe that make him uncomfortable. Then I think it's malpractice. Because if, if they're going to bring him back, I think it needs to be with the understanding that he's going to treat the regular season differently than he treated this one. Because, like you said, like the regular season just doesn't matter anymore. And I know like it seems It can give you whiplash sometimes with how fast this stuff moves, because just last season, it's like the Bucs are this great breakthrough, feel good story. They kind of came out of nowhere to be, you know, during the season, the best team in the league and wind up on the doorstep of the finals. And suddenly, you know, just one year later, it's like it's all falling apart and there's so much pressure on them. But the fact is, like they, they need to approach the regular season differently now the focus needs to be on getting over the hump in the playoffs. And look, I don't think that Bud is like completely incapable of that, but like they, he needs, if he's coming back, it needs to be with an understanding that that is where the focus is going to be. Um, And it's tough too, because I honestly think like the, the stylistic inflexibility, obviously that was an issue, but I think compared to some of the other coaching decisions he made in this series, it was almost secondary. Like it felt overblown compared to just not the, Wes Matthews. The, the substitution patterns, you know, pulling Wes Matthews in crunch time of games one and three, while Butler just completely goes off and Matthews yeah. like demonstrably their best Butler defender. You know, not hard matching Brooke Lopez's minutes to Bam out of bio with, you know, like they're they're throwing Marvin Williams out there at the five and Bam is just roasting him. And also, like that means that Brooke is on the floor against Kelly O'Linick, which they're just putting him in pick and pop. And like, why wouldn't you have Brooke Lopez out there against the non-stretchy center who can actually do damage inside? Uh, stuff like that just didn't really make a whole lot of sense to me. And that to me was almost more unforgivable than his strict adherence to, you know, a system that I, to a certain extent, I think it's justifiable him to have the kind of faith that he had in that system because they had so much success with it and maybe an under season in the regular season yes but i also think you know maybe it's an under uh, an underplayed element in all this that look the bucks that we saw in the regular season before the shutdown never showed up in orlando like this was not the same team and I kind of didn't take my own advice because when we were looking ahead, I was like, you know, you really have to treat this, I think, as a completely new season in the bubble. And that's rather the question
0: it, I I challenged you with when we did the yeah. playoff preview.
1: Right. And I I stubbornly, you know, I, I didn't take my own advice. I said that I believed that Bucks team was still in there somewhere. And that I was prepared to go down with the ship. And boy, did I, you know, for whatever reason, like, you know, Eric Bledsoe got covid And I don't know how or if that affected his play. Obviously, you know, everything that that was going on off the court and, you know, it really seemed to hit hard what happened in Kenosha in the Bucks' backyard. Um, And they're sort of in the middle of this maelstrom where they decide that they're not going to play that Game 5 against the Magic. It turns into a a three-day player strike. And they're sort of getting picked on by the other teams for not um, giving a heads up. Essentially, they're in the middle of all that, and I don't, I don't want to speculate about like how that affected their mindset, both because it's impossible to know, and also because I don't know. It just seems to minimize like what actually happened, which was a man, a black man, getting shot in the back seven times by police, and to frame that as like a distraction for a basketball team just seems kind of gross, but. You know, for one reason or any number of reasons, this was not the same team in the bubble that we saw before the bubble. And whether they would have run into these same problems anyway, I think is kind of an open question. But uh, I I think that they would be wholly justified in letting Bud go if that's the decision they make. Um, And I don't think it would be crazy to bring him back either. But I just think that it needs to be with the understanding that uh, he's going to have a different approach.
0: Speaking of coaches being let go, I mean, whether it was a fire, it seems to be a mutual thing, but Billy Donovan, surprisingly, out of a job for now, after he and the Thunder uh, mutually agreed to part ways. I was surprised by this. I mean, we were talking off air. I assume this means that A, the Thunder have already decided they really are going to kick it into rebuild mode next year. I mean, Gallo's probably not back. It means they probably are going to trade. Chris Paul and and on Donovan's side, it probably means that he thinks he's got a good shot for a job already out there that maybe allows him a better chance to win now when he knows that the Thunder are going to rebuild. The way this ties to the Bucks, of course, is that if the Thunder have made that determination that they are going to move Chris Paul to further rebuild, bring back even more in the way of asset capital, then the Bucks emerge as a very obvious Chris Paul destination because he would solve a lot of their issues. I guess, what, what do you think a potential Bucks offer for Chris Paul would look like? And do you think it gets them over the hump?
1: Okay, so I think it depends on like how badly do the Thunder just want to get off of Chris Paul's deal? How badly do they want to kick it into rebuild and just trade him for the sake of trading him? That's question number one. And question number two is, is there a team out there that can trump the Bucks offer? Because it wouldn't be that hard to trump the Bucks' offer. Like they do not have a lot to put on the table. Um, they have the Pacers pick in this coming draft. And then I don't even think that they can trade their own pick until 2024. So in terms of matching salaries, it's like a- assuming that you're not touching your three-man core in Middleton, Giannis, and Brook Lopez. It's really just a bunch of bad money that's going back the other way. You know, it's like, like Bledsoe's
0: deal,
1: it? deal, George Hill maybe they really like Dante DiVincenzo because that's kind of like the only real prospect I think that the Bucs can throw on the table here. So I don't know. It's like, yeah, the the Thunder want to take back Bledsoe's contract, Hill's contract, like Ilya Sova's contract just for the sake of getting like the Pacers 2020 pick and DiVincenzo. Because that to me is what the package looks like. And if the Thunder really want to get off of Chris Paul and there are no other offers out there, then maybe they just do it. But to me, I think there are probably some other teams out there that are going to be interested in getting Chris Paul that can do better. And, you know, then the question is, okay, if that's off the table, what personnel moves can the Bucks make here that can actually meaningfully improve their outlook for next season? Because I think, it, it, they're, I think they're really just going to rely on, like, internal improvement.
0: You look at their uh, contracts on the books like i i don't really see a path to immediate external improvement like even the chris paul thing everyone's putting two and two together because they think it just makes so much sense but then you look at the bucks books and you think yeah like who like why would the thunder take a deal that the bucks can make they can do better for Mm -hmm. chris paul and yeah they might want to get off of chris paul but like if the last season was any indication i also don't think the thunder are going to except a bad deal just for the sake of getting off Chris Paul. Like if, if the worst case scenario is, oh, we got to keep Chris Paul another year, like I think they'll be able to stomach that. So I'm with you there. And I, yeah, I mean, it's going to be hard for the Bucks to really overhaul this roster in any like meaningful way. I think by and large, this is the team they're going into next season with. If it's the coach they're going into next season with too, then, then I don't know. I just, I don't know how much different the
1: expectations can be next season. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if, you know, if the Thunder really are intent on going full rebuild, Schroeder has one year left on his deal. I don't think that would be a crazy guy for the Bucks to try and target. He's, I mean, he's 26 and, you know, putting a lot of, putting basically what remains of like their long-term asset capital on the table for a 35-year-old Chris Paul is a real short-term fix. And maybe, you know, it doesn't cost them as much to get Schroeder in and then maybe he's a guy if he plays as well as he did this season that they're actually interested in extending and keeping around because he's the kind of guy that they need honestly like a really quick athletic uh guard who can create for himself can just like absolutely abuse guys one on one in the half court get to the basket i th- they just haven't really had that guy, right? Like the I think the big thing that they were lacking in that series against Miami was a pick and roll guard who brings the dual threat of pulling up and getting to the rim. Because Middleton, for as good a shooter as he's become and honestly as good a playmaker as he's become, doesn't really get to the basket. And Bledsoe can get to the basket, but he's not at all a threat to pull up and I think ideally, you know, the Bucks would be targeting somebody who brings them a little bit more passing and playmaking and just like general basketball IQ, which is why I think CP would be such a good fit for them. But I also think just like getting a lightning quick guard who can create for himself when things get really hairy would be a pretty decent approach as well.
0: You know who would be a good fit there? Who? Malcolm Brogdon. <laughs>
1: Well, yeah, I mean, that's why, and we didn't, I guess we didn't talk about that, but I said off the top, like, I thought this was a failure, you know, not just, of you know, the Bucks players and coaches, but, and I don't put that on the front office. Like, I think the front office, honestly, I think has their, done hands a fine were tied. Yeah. their hands were tied there and to get Wes Matthews on a veterans minimum deal. I mean, that was a coup because he gave them a ton this season. And I think... You know, we'll see, I guess, if they can bring him back. He's obviously played himself out of minimum salary territory. The Bucks are going to have their non-taxpayer mid-level available to them, which is, you know, something like $10 million that they can use. I don't know if they want to use that on Wes Matthews or they think they can do better, but his wing defense was really important for them. And I don't know if they can afford to lose that. So maybe they try and bring him back. The Brogdon thing, it's just, and honestly, like this isn't, Revisionist history. Like you can go back and listen to our pods from last summer when this happened. And you will hear us decrying this move and saying that it is absolutely inexcusable for a team as close as the Bucks were to winning a championship with a transcendent star who is nearing free agency to let a player of Brogdon's caliber go, especially just given how perfectly he fit next to Giannis and Middleton and how well he played in the conference finals last year. You're getting choked up there, man. It'll be okay. The
0: Bucs will be okay.
1: I'm getting a lump in my throat, man, because Brogdon had a really nice season as a lead guard for the Pacers. And I think, like, ultimately, to me, he is still best suited as a complementary player. Sure. And you can, you really saw how his efficiency tailed off. And I think that's to be expected. Like, you go from playing alongside, you know, to a caliber offensive players to being a guy who you know you have the ball in his hands in in your hands and you're expected to create and you're taking a lot more pull-ups than catch and shoots he went from being like a 50 40 90 guy to like a 44 32 guy but like you saw what brogdon did in the first round against that miami defense right like he was the best pacers player and he was the only guy who was actually able to take advantage of they're switching uh, because he can actually like work his way to the basket, you know, drive in a straight line, use his strength to get to the hole. Also, you know, is a threat playing on or off the ball. The Bucks really could have used that in this series. And and so I think that was just like a catastrophic failure. But yep. if they can somehow find a way, like they got the Pacers pick in that deal. They said they didn't want to pay Brogdon $21 million a year and that they felt like they could use that money better elsewhere. So it is absolutely time to put their money where their mouths are. Like they yeah. need to prove that they can actually do that.
0: Buck's owner said that paying Malcolm Brogdon, like reciting Malcolm Brogdon was a luxury, not mm-hmm. a need. And he's eating his words now. because and, and that's like the annoying part of it too, because I've seen some people defend the box by saying like okay yeah it wasn't a great move but it also wasn't like as bad as you make it seem or they'll say you're expecting these small market teams to be perfect you're basically saying they need to be perfect in order to survive with the big boys and it's like you know what yes if you're a small market NBA franchise you do you do need to be closer to perfect that's a fact of life though but you know that so knowing that and knowing you're a small market team if anything, that makes it even worse that you approach this the way you did, because you're still a billionaire owner, okay, running an NBA team. This is not some mom and pop shop trying to compete with like large corporations. You are a billionaire owned NBA team who knows you're up against it to win in the market you're in and that you you cannot afford, the margin for error is slimmer. And for you to then make a very obviously bad decision That is very clearly motivated by saving money. Like, to me, it's just inexcusable. And I will not hear anyone make excuses for them. They botched that situation. And it probably came back to bite them. And I think it's okay to say that.
1: Dude, they built the Pfizer forum, like the Bucks new-ish arena, using $250 million of taxpayer money. So to do that, and then to turn around and like try and penny pinch when it came To bringing back a player that was proved to be, I think, instrumental to their championship hopes is just a joke. And and yeah, to come out and say that signing him would have been a luxury and like they'll find better uses for that money, like, I'm sorry, get out of here. Like, I I actually thought, you know, my one defense of that move was okay, they got this first rounder. That maybe gives them some wiggle room at the trade deadline this year. Maybe they'll use that to like add another piece that's going to put them over the top. Um, and actually, like, even before the season started, I threw out Chris Paul as a potential, like, target for them and thought that maybe they could use that pick as a sweetener and a deal to get him. Nope, nothing. They added Marvin Williams. Come on, man. And then used
0: him in drop coverage.
1: So this is what I mean when I... It, like, it, it was just kind of an organizational failure. And I don't think that any one person or one thing deserves all the blame. Uh, it was just, like, a combination of factors. And... I just like they're running out of options here. And so the thing is, I wouldn't be so surprised if Giannis signed the Supermax, like just given what his MO has been and like how he seems like he puts a lot of pressure on himself. And from everything that he has kind of put out there publicly, at least, and the way that he's carried himself, he is going to internalize this and he's going to consider this a personal failure more so than he's going to consider it uh, an organizational failure. And, you know, the the way that he has always carried it is that, like, it's his responsibility to get this team to championship level. I don't think it would be a good idea for him to sign that Supermax and lock himself in, but I also wouldn't be shocked if he decided to do that. because, I don't know, he he just is kind of a different breed of superstar, I think. I don't know, what do you think?
0: I wouldn't be shocked. I think it would be a poor decision on his part, because he's going to get that money regardless next year, if he really wants to stay in Milwaukee. And even injury wouldn't be able to derail that. Like He's in the stratosphere where he's getting that money, and it's fine. So I think it would be a poor decision on his part to lock himself into that now. When we, we just discussed on this episode, and we discussed it countless times, like how quickly things move in the NBA, and how long one year in the NBA is, and I don't know, like, he locks himself into that deal, and I don't know, for whatever reason, next year is like a tire fire in Milwaukee, and it just like doesn't make sense for him to do it, but to your point, he is a very different breed of superstar, you know, he seems to preach loyalty more than most, I hope it doesn't lead to like blind faith in the Bucks and him locking himself into a situation he can't get out of, but... Yeah, I mean, would it shock me if he signed the Supermax? No. Do I think he will? No. And I hope he doesn't. It's for the NBA's sake. Like, I think, mm-hmm. you know, say what you will about how annoying it is for small market fans, I guess. they, You know, they hear free agency chatter all year, but I think it is good for the NBA at large that people are talking about. It. So I hope he doesn't. I don't think he will, but it wouldn't shock me if he does.
1: Uh, Yeah, I, I agree. I think the most likely outcome is he turns it down, but he doesn't ask for a trade or indicate that he's considering walking away at the end of the season. They play it out and see if they can, you know, make another run at this thing and try and win a championship while they still have him, convince him to stick around. We talked about this briefly at the end of last episode, but I just think, I I think that trading him is off the table. I don't think. This dude is about to win his second straight MVP. He's about to become the third player in history along with MJ and Hakeem to win MVP and Defensive Player of the Year in the same season. He's 25 years old. You do not trade guys like that. You just don't. Yeah. And one year of
0: that guy is better than three or four years of whatever the hell you're getting in return for that guy.
1: I totally agree. Yeah, we'll see. We'll we'll see. They don't have a ton of wiggle room in terms of their personnel. Like I said, I think they're going to be pretty dependent on just guys getting better. And the fact is their complementary players are not super young. You know, like outside of DiVincenzo, Like I don't know, does does Middleton have another leap in him? Like I didn't expect him to get as good as he got this year, but like can he get better than this? I don't know. I don't think Brooke Lopez is getting any better. I don't think Bledsoe is getting any better. I don't think George Hill is getting any better. It's kind of incumbent on, you know, Giannis essentially rounding out his game so that defenses can't game plan him for game plan for him the way that they've been doing.
0: Which just to throw it in there too, which is like actually going to be tougher to do this offseason it's going to be a shorter offseason when the world is still dealing with like you know I, I don't want to kind of correlate the things but if you're a player that does need to make maybe some major adjustments to your game or like add some skills it's going to be tougher to do this offseason than it's
1: ever been i think that's a good point i don't know we don't even know how long this offseason is going to be right like they haven't settled on a start date for next season no. so they,
0: they did just push back the draft and free agency to an unspecified date
1: yeah, there's so much uncertainty around everything, including the league's finances right now. So it's it's almost hard to project like any decision or anything that's going to happen in the offseason. But you compared him to Shaq. And I think, you know, the issue with that is he doesn't really have any kind of post game. And that's what it's like. Maybe he doesn't need to shoot threes, but like he needs to have some kind of in-between game or an ability to score in the post or, you know, a mid-range pull up. Just... Something where, you know, when guys are kind of gapping him and stunting to the nail and taking away his ability to just get downhill and get to the rim, he has something else that he can do. I don't know if he's going to be able to do that, but certainly going to be an interesting and extremely stressful season in Milwaukee next year.
0: You mentioned the stress uh, for Milwaukee and Bucks fans. Rockets fans right now dealing with a lot of stress watching their series against the Lakers unfold after grabbing game one. Things have kind of gone off the rails a little bit for Houston, and a big part of that, and I know you especially are really going to enjoy this last few minutes, because we're going to talk about a guy that you just refuse to believe
1: exists, and that is Playoff Rondo. I gotta say, I think he's made a believer out of me, man. This is insane. This is insane. Like, this dude, he has outplayed Russell Westbrook over the last two playoff games. I I cannot believe it. My head is... Freaking exploding!
0: Rajon Rondo's last two games: thirty-one points on twenty-six individual possessions, so solidly efficient. Eighteen assists versus only four turnovers. Very solid defense and very important defensive communication and defensive IQ. We talked last episode how he's kind of been almost like the anchor of their um, zone defenses and their and their varied defenses. And he's a plus thirty-five in fifty-eight minutes. The Lakers are a minus seventeen in thirty-eight minutes without him in those two games. And as you mentioned, has completely outplayed Russell Westbrook in these two games that have now given the Lakers a two one lead. I don't really know how much more there is to add other than just say
1: like he, he's been good and he has helped turn this series. It's, it's mind blowing, man. Cause he was really bad during the regular season. And then he suffers that injury, you know, at the, just at the start of the bubble games. And I really did not expect him to give the Lakers anything. And if anything, I expected the fact that Frank Vogel seems to trust him more than he trusts like almost any other guard in his rotation to be a detriment to the Lakers. But, you know, for one thing, when he did get injured, I said that it might hurt the Lakers just because they have so little other complimentary ball handling. And I do think that's been a boon, like just his ability to handle the ball and get LeBron off of the ball and maybe give him a bit of a rest. Uh, would be nice. But like the fact that he's actually like done a pretty good job defending James Harden also, and is like shooting the three ball well and is playing basically like mistake free basketball is astonishing. And I don't know, man, maybe he just does have a playoff gear. Maybe he's the guy that's like absolutely coast through through the regular season and saves it for when it matters most. Like he's he making was, a pretty strong argument right now for that being the case.
0: He was trash in the regular season in Chicago. And then if not for his injury, might have spearheaded an eight-seed over one-seed upset against the Celtics that year, if you remember this. The Bulls went up 2-0, and he was the best player on the court, and that thing was not very good in the regular season in New Orleans. And then along with Drew Holiday, completely shuts down Dame and CJ to help the Pelicans upset the Blazers. Was even worse in L.A. during the regular season, and now we're talking about him outplaying Russell Westbrook to help swing a conference semifinal series. Like, could it just be coincidence? Sure. But like at some point, I think we
1: just have to accept like this guy's got a playoff gear. I guess I'm I'm having to accept that, man. Like I've Uh, been in denial all year long and uh, I guess I got to eat crow. Um, But we should also point out that the Lakers won that game because LeBron James was completely ridiculous. I mean, that third quarter that he put together, especially like, you know, when you stack it up with the fourth quarter that he put together in game two. Like, he's just on another level right now. And I think that series is a long way from over. But if, you know, we get Lakers Clippers like we both expect, I am so excited for him versus Kawhi. Because both of those guys right now are just head and shoulders, I think, above any other player in the league. Like, they are just running laps around everybody else. And to see LeBron out there doing this at age 35, coming up with four blocks in the third quarter alone, Getting out and busting it in transition, and, and I thought like you know a big story to me like he his help defense in game one wasn't great, and I think that was one of the reasons the Lakers lost, and he's just cranked it up to a completely different level, making like some unbelievably uh, unbelievable help rotations um, and snuffing stuff out at the rim, getting chased down blocks, hitting threes off of the dribble, like getting to the rim at will, hitting turnaround fadeaways, like. He hit one turnaround
0: fadeaway when there was no defender there. He didn't even need to turn around or fadeaway. Yeah, yeah. He did it anyway. because like PJ fell down, right? At, and he can do what he wants. Like, we're, um, we're talking about the best or second best player ever in his 17th season, age 34, or 35, whatever the hell he is now, and just had his best playoff half scoring wise of his career. Got thirty had thirty points in the first half of game three. Had never, he Had never yet twenty nine was his previous career high. So like it's one thing to talk about the fact like well wow, it's crazy he's even still at this level at this stage of his career with all these minutes on him blah blah blah. It's not even just like oh it's crazy he's still at this level. He's playing some of the best basketball of his career at this level at this stage of his career. It is mind boggling. You talk about playoff Rondo being kind of mind boggling like this is just absurd. He also now has more thirty five and five playoff games than MJ and Kobe combined. He is the all-time leader in playoff wins and among players who have played at least 200 playoff games, he's the all-time leader in winning percentage. So Is that good? Yeah, take your... LeBron like finals no not enough rings arguments and shove them straight up your candy asses okay because <laughs> the evidence is all there that this guy is again either the best or second best player of all time and has gotten it done on the biggest stage every time except for two thousand eleven and and if you can't see that there is no saving your vision
1: I don't think we need to get into talking about Clippers Nuggets because we we talked about it we a lot on the last not, but just because I had you know mentioned how excited I am for lakers clippers should that come to pass i mean just the extent to which kawaii is able to like completely obliterate an opponent's game plan at both ends of the floor while like barely breaking a sweat is unbelievable man like the guy is i've said this before but he is like the most unperturbed player in the league uh and there is just like no way to prevent him from just getting to where he's trying to go and doing what he's trying to do uh and he was just ridiculously good last night and it seemed totally effortless uh so i i am like really amped for that potential matchup and i don't know i mean like full credit to the nuggets who i think have have played above their heads at points and have really played hard not embarrassed themselves by any means like they've made this a legitimate series but i, I obviously don't think they have much hope of coming back in that series and I think with the, the way uh, the Rockets have kind of let these last couple of games slip away, I think they're really up against it as well.
0: LeBron versus Kawhi should be like the most highly anticipated star versus star matchup. Maybe of our generation, to be honest. Like, I, I think it's there if, if they match up. You know, we never got LeBron and Kobe. Um, I, I think this has the potential to be that especially cause like LeBron Durant both times. Yeah, like the okay. first time Durant and the Thunder were too young. And then the second time and the third time with the Warriors, it was like, yeah, like skill wise, they were both there, but no one thought the Cavs had a chance in that series. Anyway, like this, in terms of like LeBron matching, like a superstar at his apex, like their peak, both playing at this level and both coming into it, thinking that they should win, like to decide the Western Conference. both LA teams. It's just, you can't script it better. It's going to be epic. And honestly, by the time we reconvene early next week, it might be set because the Clippers only need one more win, the Lakers only need two more, and we'll be back early next week to maybe dive into that Western Conference preview. Until then, for Joel fun I'm Joseph Cacharro, Pound the Rock.